Hey everyone, we just wanted to uh, say our own special Ruby Rogues happy birthday to Steve Klavnik's dad, also named Steve Klavnik. Steve, your son has come on our show before and taught us a whole bunch of things we didn't know. So we know you are probably as proud of him as we are. And he told us about your 54th birthday, which is coming up on April 1st, though it's not a joke. So we wanted to dedicate this episode to you. And happy birthday from the Ruby Roads, everybody. Happy, happy birthday. birthday. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application's performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 48 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Avdi Grimm. Moo! Oh, sorry, I was still piping my output through Kause. <laughs> we also have David Brady. Hey, this is David Brady, Chief Metaphor Officer at Slide Rule Labs. We also have James Edward Gray. Hey, everybody, it's James, and I can't think of anything funny to say. We also have Josh Susser. Okay, guess what I'm drawing here? A penis. Ah! <laughs> and I'm Charles Maxwood from teachmetocode.com. We also have a special guest this week, and that's Jose Valin. Hello, I'm Jose Valin from Plataforma. Do you want to do a quick introduction, let people know who you are and what you're about? Okay, so I'm Jose Valin from Plataforma. Uh, I am Brazilian, but I currently live in Poland. I am uh, the author of Crafting Rails Applications, we are going to discuss today, and part of the Rails Core team member. And lately, I'm having fun uh, writing a programming language called Elixir. I guess that's, that's, that sums it up well. All right. Well, thanks for coming. So uh, as some people know, we've been reading your book, Crafting Rails Applications. And so we invited you on so that we could do our book club and you know talk about what, what we learned from the book. Wait, today's that book? Hang on, I gotta read something. I'll be right back. Nice. Okay, I'm back. <laughs> we just cut like four hours out of the. No, I just read really, really fast. There are a lot of words in there. <laughs> Actually, it's it's a it's it is a pretty short book. Uh, I was surprised at how quick I went through it for it being you know real high level and and stuff like that. So I, I appreciated that that it wasn't you know a long slog. Yeah, thanks. That's one of the first feedback I got from my editor, Brian Holland, is that everything was very concise and it's basically because I cannot write or express myself any other way because it's not my native language, right? So I just write everything as concise as I can, probably to finish sooner than later. <laughs> I wish more authors were like you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I wish more authors wrote in their non-native tongue, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's a, it was it a Pascal with that wonderful little quip of, uh, I apologize for the length of this letter. I hadn't time to make it shorter. Yes. yes. All right. All right. It t- takes work to be concise or yes. just learn a whole other language. That'll yep. do it. Yep. <laughs> right. Yeah, but, but we have been in the, that place where we've been reading the book, or I have anyway, been reading the book and then you know, you, you kind of tune out and then all of a sudden they, they come around to the point and you're like, oh, okay, I get it now. <laughs> you know, and it's like 10 pages of just, you know, set up that you, half of it you didn't need. So, yeah, the the thing that I love about crafting Rails applications 
is that while the chapters are short, each one is like, this is a really important thing at a very high level that you might not have known about. Um, I, I'm going through this and I'm going, wow, there's a whole bunch of stuff in Rails 3 that I didn't know about. That you know, I, I, I'm stealing a phrase from Avdi. He said this in the pre-show. Um, I've just been cargo culting all of my Rails 2 stuff into Rails 3. And the, the, this book, you need this book. You absolutely need this book. Yep. So I, I wanted to ask, uh, Jose, what, what made you want to um, write an advanced Rails book? Was it a desire to level up the users of Rails or uh, to get more people involved in contributing to Rails? Or what was your motivation? James, is because you're doing it wrong. <laughs> uh, I don't remember right now, but <laughs> I guess that... When I started like work really with Rails, I, because I joined in the Google Summer of Code, and my initial work was in generators, and then uh, Yehuda was my mentor, so I started talking a lot with him, and I realized that him and Carl did a lot of work, and and then I started to take part of this work to do as well and work with them, and then I saw that there was like a lot of things, a lot of new possibilities that were simply allowed with the refactoring that Yehuda and Carl did. And I wanted to, to write about it, right? I want to, to make it clear what is happening and how you can use that in your applications. And yeah, I, and I think it was also a very good uh, learning process for me. And it was also good to Rails because I did a lot of BDD, uh, book-driven development. So sometimes <laughs> I was trying to do something with Rails and, and then I realized, wait, like, I was writing a chapter for the book and I realized, wait, this is like more complex than it should be, right? Maybe I should split this into smaller responsibilities so I can just customize a specific part. So I guess it was a mix of all those things. Did you actually change any features in Rails because it would be too hard to write about them in the book? Yeah. I, you not, did? <laughs> not, no, I mean, like not a feature, but I've changed it like, so for example, one of the objects I inserted at some point was the lookup context object, right? Because mm -hmm. what was happening is that I wanted to explain uh, the parts independently. Like I want to explain the renderer. I want to explain how the template lookup happens. And every time it was like popping up details, like what is the format? What is the locale, right? And I said, okay, we need some object that is going to hold this information for us because it's just insane if I continue showing everyone like all those, those this information passing from one method to another. It was like two verbose, right? Mm -hmm. So I decided, okay, so let's create this new thing. I don't think that at the end I've I've changed a feature, I changed the behavior. But, you know, I've, I've inserted new classes, I've refactored some code for sure. So is that authorship-driven development? Yeah. Book-driven development. So actually, uh, Jose joked about book-driven development, but uh, uh, one of the things I do love about the book is actually he does test drive his way through, uh, mm -hmm. I think, every single example. Oh, yeah. Book. And mm. and it's some of the most natural like usually when, when authors try to test drive out a section of a book, they seem to fall into like common traps, like um, over testing or something like that, you know, getting, you know, just getting so many tests in there that it gets crazy complicated and stuff. But the test driven development in, in uh, crafting Rails application to me feels like insanely natural. Mm -hmm. And it, it really comes off great in some examples like um, where you show how to act implement uh, active model and so you just throw in the 
had to model went test and you start with failing tests and work from there, you know, mm-hmm. and I thought that was a really great way to show the examples. What made you decide to uh, do it test driven? That's a good question. <laughs> I have no idea. I think, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I think that it's just, I, I'm, usually, I'm usually doing test driven development myself, right? Uh, even when I'm working more like with frameworks, with rails, I like to do a lot of test driven development. Uh, I usually don't do test driven development when I'm, for example, so people like to do Cucumber outside in, right? I don't do this kind of stuff, but I like to do unit test driven development. I think that's like mainly the reason, right? I just wanted to reflect the way I build applications and write code. Well, no one else in the community does TDD. <laughs> it, it was actually, at some point I was like, I, I, was, I wasn't sure exactly if I should do, go with TDD or not, because at some point it feel like, because it's tricky, right? Because at, in, at, uh, <laughs> at some point for you to write the test, you need to somehow know a little bit how the system behaves or how Rails be- behaves, mm-hmm. right? So sometimes it can come off like I'm writing the test, but just I, the author, can write that test because at that point, I'm the only person who knows exactly what I need to access to get that information. You know what I mean? Does it make sense? It totally makes sense. And I, I love the fact that uh, like a lot of, I've read a lot of programming books over the past couple of years by people who ostensibly do TDD, and their books have no tests in them. And, and their defense is that, oh, the tests would be too verbose or it would make the chapters unnatural. And I'm like, that's kind of weak sauce excuse, especially now that I'm looking at your book and leading with the tests just makes it really, really clean. And the beauty of it is, is that I'm, I'm looking through your tests and I'm going, Dang! Now I know if I want to start writing an active model, the first thing I need to do is include the active, you know, the lint tests for it, so that it will tell. You know, I mean, this it's it's freaking brilliant. Yeah. I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna stop kissing your butt in this call. It's, it's, <laughs> I promise, but not yet. Um. <laughs> so, so on that same topic, not the butt kissing, the the TDD. Um, one one thing that I did notice was that. Uh, you, you kind of explain things, you know, this is what we're going to do or or this is why we need this feature to work this way. And then you'd give us the test example. And the nice thing about it was, was that sometimes I didn't completely follow what you were explaining that you wanted to do. But as soon as I saw the, um, I'm probably, I'm getting told that my, I'm getting a lot of static. I probably have my volume level set too high or something. Anyway, um, so... What what I've seen it or what I noticed was that um, basically I'll, I'll fix the static issue in a minute. Basically, what Chuck, I s- you need to stop talking and fix the static now. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really, really bad. You're, you're Megatron. You're I, I've heard drive through uh, drive through burger joints that were more legible. Only audible. Can you use the word legible with regard to audio? Is that allowed? You are if you have syn- synesthesia like I do. <laughs> I see. Chuck's audio feed tastes like poo. <laughs> <laughs> With any luck. I never know how you're going to sneak it in there, but you always sneak it in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, Is that any better? No. no. It's not. No. You are still very badly cut up. That's weird. It's, it's not coming through on the recording, so it's got to be the, the sound card going into my computer. Ouch. Yeah, it just barely started. I wonder if you, do you have a a battery powered system in the mix somewhere that might have a dying battery? Uh, no, I don't. It's, it's you want to restart the call real quick? 
Sure. We might have to because, yeah, it's getting worse. All right. I'll hang up and restart the call. Okay. Sound check. Sound check. Yo. Sound check from David. You're better, Chuck. All check, right. check, 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 check. Okay, it must Everybody's have been Skype. Okay, Chuck, you were asking a question. Go for it. Well, what, what I wanted to point out was that in a lot of cases, the test the test examples were what really clarified things for me. So yeah. if, if I wanted to know exactly what was going on, which is part of the purpose of the test, you know, you test exactly what the code is supposed to be doing. I could just look at it and say, okay. So for example, um, when I was reading, when you create the, the markup and ERB mix, um, which I thought incidentally was kind of funny that it had a MERB extension, but <laughs> anyway, um, you know, that, that really just communicated, well, okay, look, you need to be able to get a, a text format out of this and an HTML format out of this, and it needs to work in this way. And for me, it was just so clear. It's like, look, these are the important parts, The and, and this is what we're shooting for. And so it, it really did clear things up. And, you know, I, I see that as one of the benefits of TDD, but it, it also really helped, I think, in getting your point across in the book. So Nice. Thanks. Yeah, I um, I thought the examples you chose were another uh, strong point of the book. Like, I don't know, I just found a lot of the examples like really cool, like um, uh, you know, really practical. How do you do a form where it just emails all the fields to you or stuff like that? But then in that one, you included the nice uh, honeypot twist, so that you know, if a spam bot came in there and just filled out all the fields, it would actually throw it away because there was the honeypot field in there. Um, I, you had another example where you used Markdown for, you know, both the email text and HTML body, you know, after you run it through a converter, which is great because it's exactly what Markdown's for, you know, and, and lets you write both sides of the email with one pass. I just, I thought your examples were pretty inspired. Where did you come up with those? So... <clears throat> Uh, sorry. Uh, some of them, they were already existing gems, right? So the mail form was an idea I had, like, still in working Rails 2, and Rails 3 just made it, like, extremely easy, and then I thought it was a good subject. The same with responders. Uh, but ideally, I've at the beginning, what I did is that I've chosen some parts of Rails I wanted to talk about, right? So first I came, like, oh, I want to talk about... Uh, active model. I want to talk about engines. Uh, I want to talk about uh, ORM stuff, right? And then I was trying to come up with ideas of how to to ex to show the, those features, but in not not in not a total academic way that I would just say, "Hey, this is how you could do." But by the way, I don't have any practical example of how you can do with it, right? Because it would make no sense. So, and then with time, I was like being able to get some ideas and match them and put them in the book, right? There was, for example, we have abstract controller in Rails, which is what we use as foundation for, for both uh, action controller and action mailer. And it was one of the things I wanted to cover, but I didn't, for example, in this case, I didn't come up with anything particularly interesting I could talk about using or I could build with abstract controller. So... It was just left out of the book, right? I didn't cover it with more detail. I had one of the ideas that I could make potentially a Jabber client that so you would send command, commands to to the Jabber and it would map the commands to an action and execute the action or something like that. But you know, it, it didn't felt as natural. I would end up uh, I would end up spending a lot of time doing the Jabber setup and 
it was odd. He didn't write the chapter after all. Yeah, the, I I liked the way that that you built the chapters like that. That, but it, but it, it was um, it was like the cool stuff in the chapter often snuck up on me. So that there were, uh, for for example, when you were talking about sending the um, uh, the multi-part emails using template handlers. And you get down into that chapter, and all of a sudden, boom! You're talking about customizing generators and using rail ties, and the, so it was uh, sort of the benevolent version of leading someone down the garden path. But instead of yeah. hugging them, you give them a toy surprise. <laughs> nice, <laughs> right? That's yeah, I think it. that was one of my very favorite things about this book is that that every like um, you're you're kind of very casually um, and using um some very very powerful stuff uh but not in a not in a way that's like oh and you, you you know you already know how to use this incredibly obscure thing but but you're actually showing that a lot of um relatively obscure and very powerful um you know extension points are really easy to use um and 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 what was fascinating to me is that you chose some actually some really ambitious examples like oh let's store all the views in the database instead of uh instead of on disk and then you step through and it's actually a really straightforward process if if you know the uh the extension points um i'm not sure that that's really a question but uh, i don't know well i guess uh do you do you feel like um a lot of developers are maybe underusing the framework that's hard question uh I have no idea because uh, when I'm usually like rigid uh, for consultancy is exactly because people are using those parts, right? Maybe because mm-hmm. of the book or because of something else and they want some validation if what they are doing is correct and how they can improve, right? So in my perspective, there, there are a lot of people actually using those things, right? But it's because that's how this information got to me in the first place. So I have, so it's hard. Mm. <laughs> Because like but, I, I know that I'm going to change how I write things based on on what I learned from this this book, and I feel like there are a bunch of things where I've been trying to work around the framework. Where now I, I feel like I can work with the framework, um, and mm-hmm. and I see so much code that seems like it's building huge piles of code around the framework, um, and, and and I'm more and more understanding that a lot of that's just not necessary. Yeah. Nice. Actually, I have a better answer. Uh, I think that. Uh, people are not subutilizing the framework because uh, with the book, uh, I think I was able to reach a lot of plugin developers. And most of the end, uh, at the end of the day, most of the people they are they are using plugins, right? And the plugins they are built on this foundation, right? So I guess people are utilizing it well because they are doing that via right. plugins. That that's something that really you know. Now that you say it, it seems obvious to me is that you know plugins are going the way of engines. And if you use engines and rail ties in particular, um, you really do get the ability to extend all of these different things into into a plugin. And so, yeah, this this is really a handbook for how to extend Rails. Yeah, it the the engine part was one uh, at first. Yehuda uh, and Kao they were going like to cut off of Rails three because they were uh, without time. But it like I already had device and devices and engine right. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the things I decided to work on for Rails 3, and I put a lot of effort in this RailTie engine stuff with the help of both Vihud and Carl, because I, I need it badly, right? And I think it, it is, it's great because, so today I'm working in a big project, and it would be like a total mess if I could not split uh, my project into engines and split the concerns this way. 
Yeah, and, and that's another thing that's really handy with engines is that um, it occurs to me in a lot of cases that <clears throat> um, a lot of people go to the SOA, the, the service-oriented applications, simply because they need that kind of separation of concerns within their application to avoid um, unnecessary coupling and things. And engines is a good way of managing that as well if you can stick it all in the same um, in the same application. Yep. You know, uh, Jose, there's been a, a movement in Rails recently, I think, about, you know, doing better object-oriented design in Rails. And uh, it was your book that made me realize uh, that Rails kind of beat us to the punch, right? That, that Rails was already doing better object-oriented development. And then in your examples, you're like, hey, let's write a new responder. Luckily, Rails plans for this, so we can just write this object and boom, we're good, you know? And and uh, over and over again, I thought in your book you were just using good object-oriented design. Was that a conscious effort on your part or was that just a, a natural result of the way Rails has changed recently? Uh, both, because most of the work was already done by Yehuda, right? So Yehuda did... Uh, the resolver part, and he had exactly those use case in mind, right? He figured, like, hey, maybe someone wants to. Uh, by the way, when I say Huda, please automatically include crawl. <laughs> but uh, he said, like, maybe so someone wants to customize, right? The the classic case is liquid templates, right? Because you, they are usually in the database, and when you and in Rails two time, you wanted to use liquid. They were saying, oh, you should get a template from the database, and you want to compile it, and probably put it on main cache, right? And at this point, you are like duplicating a lot of the efforts that uh, Rails already does because Rails finds the template for you. Uh, Rails caches the template and Rails checks if the template was updated or not, right? So Yehuda came with this idea. Uh, and then, as I, as I said at the beginning, and then I just, when I was writing the book, there was like a lot of things that were complicated and they were complicated because, you know, high coupling, uh, an object was doing too many things and I was just trimming it down. Uh, part of the work, it actually continued in Rails 3.1. Uh, in my talk for, for RailsConf last year, I, I, I give I like, it's actually for people that read the book, it's actually nice to, to see it because I've kind of predated part of the book there because in Rails 3.1, uh, I've split a little bit more the responsibilities and it's actually now very easy for you to have a Sinatra-like uh, controllers in Rails, right? So you can, you can say that the context where actually rendering your views is the controller and not actual view base anymore. So you can do Sinatra style that uh, the instance variable is actually the control instance variable. You're not copying it anymore. You can call protected methods and stuff like that. I thought, I thought kind of talking about those examples you just mentioned, um, that you really showed kind of some new age rails, I think, in the book. Like, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk, and I know you've been involved, uh, you know, showing counterexamples about how, well, you know, in Rails, you always get in all of this, you know, plumbing whenever you make a controller or whatever. But even in the book, you just show, here's how you strip a controller down to pretty much nothing, you know, and just the bare bones parts and adding what you want. Or uh, another example was uh, threading, right? Re recently, Rails became... Uh, thread safe, and you have kind of a cool example of 
which probably doesn't even require thread safe rails to be honest but uh, but it's still kind of cool that you have an example of look what we can do with threads and a simple queue you know so I thought the examples were kind of leading the way nice another comment about uh, engines and testing uh, you had your engine X um, uh, sort of test framework that you put together, and w which I found really interesting. I, I built something a lot like that um, a year or so ago for an internal thing, and uh, so it was it was cool to see that get out there. I never had a chance to open source what I did. I think your approach was you know pretty similar to what I did. It's kind of the obvious thing to do, but it, but it's nice to have that out there, and it, I, th I think it would be great to you know have that be more publicized or higher profile. Is is that it is, I guess that's open source because it's part of the book. Have you seen some some people uh, taking that up and using that? Has there been feedback on that? What's the is there buzz around it? Yeah. So uh, right now, uh, Nginx is dead because it was kind of merged into Rails 3.1. So in Rails 3.1, mm -hmm. when you do Rails plugin new, it's going to generate basically a similar structure. Uh, as you have in the book, so it's going to generate the lib folder, and the test directory is going to have a Rails application there. And that answers was, my question. Yeah, and it was uh, part of the, not part, but all of the work was done by Piotr Sarnatsky. Uh, he, he did the Ruby Summer of Code in Mountable Engines, mm -hmm. and we we Rails 3.1 improved a lot uh, how we can handle engines. So if you go to Rails plugin new and check the options, you have options like mountable. So today you can mount an engine. So for Rails 3.1, we made that engines, they are actually rack application as well. So you can say, go to a route and say, hey, I want to mount my engine at this point, right? And then if you say that the engine is isolated, it isolates everything, it isolates the helpers, it isolates the, the models. So, you know, because the default in Rails, for example, is that you have app helpers, and then the default in Rails that is going to include all the app helpers across all engines and this kind of stuff, right? So when you isolate, you don't have this kind of stuff anymore. You have them, like, completely separate components, and then when you mount it, it's like uh, another component. You, you don't have a universal router anymore, because until Rails 3.1, before Rails 3.1, uh, the router, even if you had an engine, what the engine was doing was that it was adding routes, your application router, but Rails 3.1 engines has its own routers, so you have different route sets and different ways. It was like a really amazing work that uh, Piotr did to, to make building uh, engines easier. So this is nice because it's a lot more flexible than it already was. It was like it was a nice progression, right? Because in Rails 2.3, we had engines already, but basically what was happening there is that uh, there was a lot of code duplication, right? So basically, this is how you initialize an application. They copy that code and they paste it in the engine class, and you had a duplicated uh, initialization code. And then for Rails 3, we improved that to, to, to actually make uh, an application inherit from engine. So the booting process, the, the loading locales and views is like uh, similar, is the same. And then 3.1 took this step. So it was nice. And also answering your question, I don't remember exactly the name of the gem. I think it's combustion, but I have to check it out. Uh, one of the people said that, oh, I don't want to necessarily have a whole Rails application in my test directory, right? So, so what you can do is that you can have, for example, a single file or uh, a gem that mimics a real application, and that's what this 
uh, this gem does. And it's very simple. It's based on the same idea of a gist I published some time ago that you can put a whole Rails application into one file, right? Mm -hmm. So this is, this is like another approach for the same thing, which is actually very interesting as well. I, I had a slightly different approach. With, what I did was that uh, as part of the uh, spinning up the test suite, I generated a whole new Rails application fresh every time. Which which actually only takes a moment. Uh, you know, yeah. it, it didn't it didn't appreciably add to the time of running the test suite, and you know, that that because what I was doing was I was building a a, frame, a suite of engines that work together as a component framework. Uh, it it made a lot of sense to be trying each one out new with a fresh application every time, and it worked fine. So, that, but yeah. that, that is another possible approach. Anyway, that's a whole like. That is some aggression. seriously nerd baller stuff right there, yeah, Josh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back to the book. <laughs> so yeah. um, I, I, I had a pain. I had a pain point. If I can, if I can, uh, yeah, go. cut in line, James. <laughs> so the there were there were some there's some really cool stuff in the book. But but let let's start ragging on things now. The uh, one of one of the things that has I found frustrating in Rails three is. The you know, on the good side, there's all the cool stuff you can do with rail ties and engines and and configuration. But it, I, I don't know if the documentation has improved a lot in the last year. But a year ago, it was pretty hard to understand how to how to work with things like the um, the the uh, paths and and the the and uh, like you know, how to set up the configuration in the rail ties. The, and, and a good example of that was when you were showing how to set up engine and changing all the path names. So it, when you were saying, oh, you don't have to load the, um, the, the controller from you know, you know, app controllers. You can load it from lib controllers. And the, the syntax for setting up those path names just always drives me batty. That it's, you know, instead of using normal hash syntax, uh, somebody decided. Oh, here let, we'll we'll create an, our own little DSL for describing these path names. <laughs> yeah. So I have good news is that we changed the syntax in Rails three point one and deprecated the old one because I agree it was just horrible the DSL right. So oh, today oh, so it's just it's just a hash. Oh great! Holy freaking crap, guys! <laughs> I. I think I've discovered a pattern here. We complain to something about Jose, about to Jose, and then he tells us it's already fixed. Quick, <laughs> find something else. Find something else. <laughs> That's kind of an interesting point, though, and we've we've actually hinted at it with Abdi's earlier comment, parroted by David Brady. But um, you know, it, if you came into Rails a long time ago, like most of us did, then you you learned how to write Rails how Rails was then, you know. And then Rails has grown up over time and changed, right? And some sometimes we just keep writing things the way that we know how to write them, and that still works in Rails. But in reading this book, as you casually introduced me to the architecture at every turn, you know, here's the middleware stack, and here's how models work now and stuff like that. I, all I kept thinking is, oh, I've definitely been screwing that up. Oh, I really should have been using this, you know, or things like that. It's it's interesting. I We need some path like this book, you know, for people that have been in Rails and, you know, okay, you used to write it like this. Now you should be writing it like this, you know. Yeah. James keeps reading things and going, oh, I've been screwing that up. I keep reading things and going, huh, that's a thing? <laughs> <laughs> you weren't getting it wrong. You just weren't doing it at all. I just wasn't getting it at all. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, have, I have 
Uh, oh, go ahead. I, I have a real quick question, um, and this is something that seems to come up every few months, and I'm interested to get your take on it, especially since we're kind of digging into, you know, we're going further down the rabbit hole with Rails, and that is is that a lot of people are saying Rails back in like version 1.2 or 1. you know, whatever, was much easier to pick up than it is now, and it seems like with all the modularity and all of these other features, it's, there's just more to know. Um, do you feel like it's, it's easier or harder to, to learn to use? And, uh, you know, how do these new features kind of fit in with, uh, the way you think about that? Uh, I think that it's more, uh, you guys can agree or disagree with me. I would, I would love the discussion is that it's more of the whole ecosystem thing, right? Mm -hmm. Because at some point when we started, we just, uh, had like, Ruby 1.8.6 and that's what everyone was using and that was fine and we have we had very few gems right and so the ecosystem started to grow as a whole and then we had like different um, Ruby implementations and now people need to worry about uh, RVM right and then everyone is using a bunch of gems uh, because which is great right and now you need to have something like bundler and so it all this i think those are the kind of stuff right that it makes it more complicated for you to set up we try to abstract it away from you the maximum we can but we cannot do everything and yeah so i agree in the sense that it it gets harder right but uh, i prefer the way it is right now than the alternative right which is every time i want to to run our spec I realized that it's causing conflict because something was already activated or stuff like that, right? Uh, but I think we, we can get better. It would, it would be great if one day we can get rid of uh, Bundle, Azek, and this kind of stuff, right? We're just, you're just like, the ecosystem is changing. We are adapting to it. And then sometimes we need to catch up with new things. Sometimes the new things somehow needs to catch up with us. So for example, people are complaining for quite some time that booting a Rails application uh, is much is much slower, but it's because we have like we have gem dependencies now, right? We have probably more files than we had in Rails two, and we have to require and process all this stuff. Uh, the 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 booting system per se is like more robust, so you can do more kind of stuff, and it's probably slower, right? And 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 now like everything is catching up with those new things that came. So we have Ruby 1.9.3 with the Falcon patch that's like insanely fast. I think someone was doing like uh, a benchmark of booting a Rails 2.3 application and a Rails 3 application uh, with the Falcon patch is like the same. You don't see a difference in booting time anymore. So yeah, things are changing, but I guess they're changing all the time and sometimes they're going to get worse temporarily so they can get good and better after. Right. That, okay, so, so another one of the, I, I think this is a good segue into that, that I, I think if you look at some of the features in Rails and how the, how the APIs are built, uh, some of them, I think, they're, they're very well done. Others, I think the functionality is there, but the, the longevity, I, I worry about the longevity of the API. The, an example is just the Mac, the, uh, sorry, the rack middleware. And the responders that you talked about uh, were, they both use this uh, very generic call API. And, and, you know, and they're saying, oh, it, which is basically a functional paradigm. You say, okay, great, I'm just going to hand, hand you this function, and you're going you know, to call it with some arguments, and it'll do something. And you know, sure, that works, but 
you've now taken all of the expressiveness of your object-oriented language and shoved it into, oh, here's a function, uh, call it. And the, you know, if I look at Rack and I see, oh, here's this, this thing, it's a piece of middleware or whatever they're going to turn the name into in Rack 2, um, and, and you're just going to do call, and what you get back is an array of three things, and it's positionally determined. I, I can understand if you're programming in C how that kind of thing makes sense, but we're, we're in a very high-level language, and there's very low overhead involved with having an object that has a status code method and or message and and uh, you know and a body and a st and you know just all the things that and, the, and I guess the headers having those things as actual messages that you that you send to an object to get the results back seems like there's zero overhead in doing that and it's actually a lot simpler to think about that than I have an array and I have to remember that it's the second item in the array that I need to grab the thing out of and 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 the same thing got done with the responders where oh I have a responder and all I'm doing is I'm, I'm, I'm doing call and I'm going to pass in this very complicated set of arguments that I have to remember how those things are ordered and what the options mean. I mean, why isn't that just an object with, but with it fields is. on it? I mean, Rack provides that object if you want to use it. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I know what you're saying, Avdi. I, I think, though, to add to Josh's example and kind of where he's going, Aaron Patterson has talked in several talks about how... It, it's kind of like because of the rack middleware setup, all, all you get is call, call, call. But the truth is that like Rails, for example, uses that for three different things. Like one is managing some kind of global state like Active Records Connection Pool. One is uh, a set of filters on content that, you know, as the content's coming back out, it replaces key tidbits for asset pipeline or whatever. Uh, a third one, I honestly can't even remember at this at the moment but but that and because of that because rails is doing that you're you're growing this call stack right every time so one of the main reasons rails has gotten slower over time is that you know now it's like the middleware stacks like 68 deep right and and uh, you know they, they have to pass down this call chain whereas it might make sense if you had if you had a setup more like what Josh is talking about you could register filters right and those could all really be handled at one level instead of each needing to be at a separate point in the line right and and they could just run through and do the filtering of content as needed and that stack would shrink and uh, then those could be tuned specifically to that purpose and you could still have the generic you know wrapper if, if you needed that so I, I I think I see both sides like I, I do appreciate the the you know it's I love it that I can just grab a lambda and throw it in there in the super simple case but it does seem like having a real object API uh, would give us some things that we don't have now and that would make certain aspects easier. That seems more like a problem with Rack than Rails, though, in my okay. opinion. Okay, so, so Rack was one example, and I think that, that it's, it, it, it's a different thing than the responder internal API. Yeah. The yeah, so, so there are like, uh, I don't know if the responder example actually apply, but the way I like to look at it is that uh, sometimes, you know, we need to take a step, which in the future, when we look back, it may seem like a step back, which is like the Rack API being that simple instead of being object. But if you go at that time, right, when you, you had Rack, 
it and rack came out it's like it makes extremely sense right sometimes you need to do something extremely simple that you are not going to assume anything uh, and see how the uh, how people is going to react to that and use that so you can take this step forward and say like oh i know what people want to do with this right so this is so this is my response right so i have rack and then i realize how people are using how rails are using how most frameworks are using say okay now i think that we can go to this more uh, optimum scenario, right? So maybe mm-hmm. you're using this lambda abstraction just as a way to say, like, I have no clue what I'm doing here. <laughs> Please just use it, and let's come up with the use cases and have better abstractions for it in the future, right? And <laughs> no, no, that's and great. I, I, I think there's nothing wrong with that. You gotta, you gotta figure out what you're doing and and evolve your way into a better solution. That's great. I and. You know, I know that there's some work being done on on Rack on, in that regard. The the stuff like the responders, though, I think that it, it's worth taking a look at why is it set up in that in that very functional way where it's just an anonymous function and you have to have some understanding. And, and all it does is it, it like takes stuff and calls an initializer on a on a object internally. So why yeah. why is that hidden behind this really genericized interface that doesn't seem to add much to me? And is, the, yeah. and is that a direction that's being pursued as uh, you know, internally in Rails to clean that stuff up? I don't think so. I think it was just when design, it was like, <laughs> I, I, I think I wrote that quote. It was like the idea I had in my mind at the time. I say, hey, I was probably a rack hipster. I would say, yeah, I'm just going to use call. <laughs> and then that's how things came out at the end. And probably you can refactor it now because I agree with you. In practice, what everyone is doing is that they are actually inheriting from action control the responder. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't seen anyone actually writing their responder from scratch because unfortunately there is still like there, there there is a lot of logic in the setup in the initialized method as you said. So we can either uh, move the setup away and pass an object that already has the setup to a lambda or we can just go as I said like let's go for object oriented. Mm-hmm. Okay. On the, on the plus side, just having the simple method wrapping, I, I think sometimes does pay dividends. Like I really liked how the uh, middleware stack is being used in Rails now in in, in every level. Like that, I, I can just add something above this controller or above this action, right? Just by getting something in there, and and I think it's. Actually, the fact that it's just that one method that makes that trivial, in my opinion. It's very fractal. Yeah, that's an interesting way to explain it. Yeah. I have a a question. Um, I I wonder if you can just sort of briefly uh, lay down some rules for when do I uh, when do I add a mount a Sinatra app? You know, for what purposes do I ma- just mount a Sinatra app? For what purposes do I write a rail tie? For what purposes do I write an engine? Right. So uh, the Sinatra app, uh, like I'm saying personally, uh, so the Sinatra app is just, for example, you have already some existing functionality that you want to mount into Rails. So, for example, your Rescue, they have a server API built in Sinatra, right? So you can build that in your application, and and that's great. But if I am like going to do something specifically for Rails that does not have the intention of being used separately, I would or do a rail tie or an engine or actually none. 
So depending on what you are doing, so the first chapter, I think, is where we build the render. And we don't even need a real tie at this point, right? Because you just want to hook into Action Controller, and that's it, right? Uh, the real tie you need when you want to add, like, customize at some point uh, Rails booting process, right? You want, or you want to provide configuration. So let's suppose you have a gem named, I don't know, full bar, and then you want to add config.fullbar so people can customize stuff. You need a real tie for that. And the engines is when you want uh, it, you want, want to have kind of a mini application. So you want to have your own models that are going to be reloaded in development, your own views, your own helpers. Maybe you want to mount something. That's like the rough guidelines. Mm, okay. So I'm a little curious. Um, you, you mentioned that things like Nginx have made their way into the Rails uh, core for, I, I guess, or the Rails uh, repository. Um, do you have any intention of going back and updating this to kind of reflect some of these changes that have gone in? Or uh, By this, you mean the book yeah. or Nginx? Yes, the book. So I've, I've been somehow dating, uh, updating the book, uh, maybe even adding extra chapters. So the whole Rails 3.1 will probably be worth a new chapter to talk about what you can do now with engines, which is what I was telling you, we can mount the engines, right? Uh, but besides that, uh, I, I, I don't, I can't think of like huge things like because I cannot think that I could write other chapters besides those one that would feel similar to the chapters I have now in the book, right? We don't have something conceptually as big or we can work in that way. So one other idea I had that could be fit the, that could fit the book was that idea I said at the beginning that uh, we could do controllers in after style where you're rendering the, the contest or you render the view with the controller, but that would be like something small, right? Uh, I wrote a blog post some time ago, like my five favorite hidden Rails 3.2 features. And one of the features I talk now is how you can customize the exception rendering, right? And that could also be part of the book, but it's something like, you know, very small. I, I would be able to go over it like completely in one page, two pages maximum. So, yeah, I think I want to update eventually, maybe when Rails 4 comes, comes out or something like this. Uh, but I don't feel like there is a rush or a lot of new content I could add. What about the asset pipeline? I mean, it's a big new piece, but is it not really customized in the way that the pieces you talk about in the book are? Is that what makes it not a good choice? Yeah, so the thing, so there are a few things you could do with the assets pipeline, right? That we are always discussing it. So for example, the assets pipeline use uh, tilt for template rendering, and we could somehow make it use, uh, or we could change rails to use tilt as well, or we could just make the assets pipeline use the rails rendering. And then if we integrate the assets pipeline close, uh, closer to rails, we would somehow remove most of the customization we, we, we could do, right? Because it's just the same thing. They are the same, uh, they are the same penances, right? So, uh, I don't know, maybe we could do something with the assets pipeline. I think I'm trying to say that we could do something with the assets pipeline, but the fact I would, for example, if I write a chapter, it says like, hey, in the chapter three, I've taught you how to write a template engine 
for for Rails, right? Now I'm going to teach you how to write a template engine for the assets pipeline or something like that. That's weird for me, right? They should be the same thing. So maybe it's one of the areas that could have a little bit more of BDD, <laughs> the book-driven development, so I could change things a little bit and, and make, make them make sense in, in my, under my eyes, right? So yeah, I think it's one of the things that I, I have to study it more and see how, how I could change it before I write, I write a chapter on it. One of the things I wanted to eventually write a chapter as well, it's one of the initial ideas I had for the book, was maybe change active relation to query uh, a web service. <laughs> so you could write the same queries and then at the end you're querying a web service, maybe active resource. But so, but that would require a lot of effort. I don't think that uh, Ara would I would make it easy or even possible. So there are those other things, but they would require uh, a huge amount of work before I could write something that would be nice and easy to customize. I guess. All right. Well, if there's if there's nothing else that people have that they want to uh, jump in with, then we'll go ahead and get to the picks. I, I just wish oh. there was more to complain about about the book so that we could just you know just keep hammering on Jose. But <laughs> I, I, I have I have a non book topic uh, just just quickly. Uh, you know, Jose, could you say something about the um, the open source vacation that you're taking right now? Because the the um, the tweeting that you did about it uh, was clear that something was happening, but it wasn't really clear like what your involvement in Rails Core is right now and, and just what you're up to. So I had like this kind of ritual that uh, the first thing I do every morning uh, is that I go through Rails pull requests, for example, and I reply to everyone. I try to say like, hey, this pull request is great. Here's what you can improve. Uh, and merge uh, what is already good and really try to communicate with people. But uh, from time to time, it was, and obviously, I don't have the responsibility, right? It's just something I did for pleasure, for fun. But uh, lately, it will start to become stressful. I was not feeling uh, that much pleasure to do it. It was kind of a self-imposed responsibility, then something for fun and you know, I and with everything that was happening all the time, a lot of criticism, and I am, uh, I personally, there are people react differently for this kind of things, right? So I wish someday I, I'm going to be like a master like DHH that he simply doesn't care what people are talking about, right? So he he simply can he doesn't let that take him, right? But I am the person that I am reading and I, I want to talk to people. I want to understand what is happening. I want to understand how I can make it better for them. And this whole interaction was becoming so stressful that I said like, okay, I, I need to stop. I need to take a break. I need to stop doing these public things, right? It doesn't change my relationship. Like Preferral Score, I'm still a Real Score member. I am talking with Yehuda, Pastorino, Aaron, Xavier every day. Uh, including about Rails-related stuff, I'm just like going away from like this, let's say, public relations, right? I'm just taking a break, and maybe I will go to some point where I can actually care less in the good way. If someone like try to throw stones at me, I would like not care. I'll say like, okay, fine, my life goes on, or something like that. Just use the force and throw them back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, it's it's a. Uh... Yeah, I, th I think it's totally understandable. The you know the currency of open source is is not money. It's you know something having to do with 
know, personal interactions. Like, you know, maybe Avdi knows the term for that thing without a name. <laughs> um. <laughs> Respect. <laughs> Is that it? Uh, but but yeah, it's it's understandable. But but you're still you're still part of um, part of Rails Core and contributing and and working on stuff. Yeah, I'm just fo- focusing on on other stuff, right? It, it doesn't mean like for example that I am stopping of uh, contributing to things in general. So if I'm building a Rails application and I see that something in Rails is broken or I'm benchmarking a production app and I see that something is slow, I'm going to obviously go there and fix it, right? I'm just like. Uh, going away from like merging pull requests, try to you know th- those things I described. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that that seems to be the natu- natural progression for a lot of people doing open source maintenance. That they you know they have a a period where they're doing a lot of you know serving uh, public requests, and then a period where they don't. And you know, you know pe- people leave Rails Core now and then, and people join Rails Core, and you know that's life. I don't think it's anything to get too dramatic about, but it's it, but. Uh, it's it's good to know what's up with you and where that came from. Do you have any other open source projects you're working on? Yeah, so you know there are the company open source projects. Uh, so I'm committing to them less and less because the guys are simply doing a great work, which are device and simple form. Um, and I am also working on my language called Elixir, which is a language for the Erlang virtual machine, and uh, it's going great. I'm putting uh, a lot of work uh, on it lately because uh, the company agreed that they would uh, pay for me to work on it as well. So yeah, I'm putting a lot of effort in that and try to get uh, a version that will be, I can tell to people like, go install and use it because we are good at this point to try stuff out. Uh, if, if it, once you get to that point, what would the like what would the use case be where you would say, yeah, this is a good thing to to try to use Elixir for? So um, the so ba- basically, I do web stuff, right? So I'm thinking about uh, web. Uh, basically, uh, so for example, if you have to to think in scenarios where you need to handle a bunch of concurrent requests, which where people would use Event Machine today, uh, I I would like to say like. Hey, maybe you can try uh, Elixir out, right? Because it's on their Lang Virtual Machine, and their Lang Virtual Machine was built uh, with exactly that in mind. They were built for they, they were built by Ericsson, and they had in mind uh, telephone switches. So you have a lot of concurrent connections open there at the same time, and they have like if you go to the Erlang mailing list and you get reports, people are doing all this kind of crazy great stuff right so there is you know whatsapp an application for iphone android kind of stuff does any of you guys know it or not really um yeah i think i've seen a video about it yeah so they they're like it's basically a message right but it worked between devices across devices and uh they have like they have a node each node in their in their system is their Lang machine, and it handles two million concurrent TCP connections, right? So that's like, wow, what the fuck? What is happening there? And then we have this case of Facebook also using Erlang for chat and this kind of stuff. And Elixir is basically trying to make Erlang d- development uh, nicer. I'm trying to provide uh, a better syntax, better abstractions, like protocols uh, and this kind of stuff. So I, I, I will use it mainly for web development, I guess. So if I had something that needs to handle a lot of concurrent connections or maybe an API backend, but I hope that people that 
you know, they are, oh, I'm planning to do this, uh, this something in Erlang, they could also just go and use Elixir because the idea is that it simply works, right? It's like uh, Scala or closure in the Java virtual machine. You can just use the other language and access everything and it's going to work fine. Cool. All right. We really do need to get to the picks. So um, go check out Elixir. That sounds really, really cool. Um, also, so- Josh will be happy to know it's homo iconic. Uh, highly overrated (laughs) (laughs) all right Avdi what are your picks Um, I think I just have one I I just published uh, a little tiny uh, fun app um, called cowsays.com. That's not my pick, but I just wanted to uh, say I've in in my own personal work uh, putting little apps together. I've started using a uh, a view plugin called Erector um, for the last couple little apps I've started working on, and I've Don't really enjoyed. Don't even think it. about it, David. <laughs> <laughs> I thought um, about it, but I was muted, and so I'm like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's. You know, it's it's a it's a different um, kind of view uh, for Rails. Um, it 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 starts out with something like Markaby, where you're writing your views in in Ruby, uh, which I really like uh, because I really really hate mixing languages. I hate having to switch the mental modes, and if I'm not actually working with a designer, then I'm perfectly happy to write my HTML in in Ruby instead of uh, instead of in in HTML or in some mix. Um, or in some third language like like Hamel, um, the but the the really interesting thing about it is that it takes that and it builds another level on it where uh, every view is a class with a content method which actually you know outputs the the text of the view and the neat thing there is that you can if you want to say a layout you can have a layout class and then have the parts of the layout that change for different pages. Are, can be factored out as different methods, and then you just you just uh, derive a class from that layout. You know, if you want an individual page uh, view, you just derive a class from your layout, and you customize the parts of the page. You know, by by overriding methods, you customize the parts of the page that you want to change. Um, and so it basically everything that you know about um, object-oriented programming just sort of carries over into uh, making specific views for for specific uses. Um, and uh, you know, at least for my little apps, it's it's been a, a pleasure to work with. So it, it it doesn't make it hard to get something stood up quickly. That's Ouch. correct. Ouch. <laughs> go go sit in the corner. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, and stop doing that while you're in the corner. <laughs> okay um i'm gonna go ahead and go next um so one of my picks was something that james brought up in in the pre-show and so we actually recorded a very deliberate opening for that and that is uh steve klavnik's dad um he has a blog post where he basically explains what's going on with his dad and uh, why he's trying to get birthday cards for his dad which is going to be on april 1st and so i've actually uh talked to my VA in advance to make sure that this episode will go out in time for you to send a birthday card. Um, so uh, go ahead and click on the link in the show notes um, and uh, then you can get Steve's um, physical address where you can send the birthday card. Um, I'd really love to uh, basically have have Steve like on Saturday tweeting something like, holy crap, the mailman just dropped off a whole bag of cards. And, and I think we as a community can really do that. So um, really just go and, uh, you know, take the opportunity to, to thank somebody who gives a lot to our community. 
Um, and, and, you know, it sounds like he's going through some difficult stuff. So I think this would really be, uh, something nice that we can do for him. Um, also, uh, I, my other two picks, one is, is, uh, I was upgraded to the latest version of Skype as of, uh, until like a couple days ago. And I finally just got tired of the interface because, uh, the, the new Skype after version 5.0 is bad enough. But uh, every time I've upgraded, I've wound up hating it more and more. So I actually downgraded back to uh, Skype 5.0. And uh, I've been getting complaints from people on my Skype call, namely this one, that my audio isn't great coming through Skype. It sounds fine on the recording, but I just, you know. So I'm probably going to upgrade to 5.1 and see how that goes. But anyway, so my pick is old versions of Skype that actually have a interfa- an interface that you can deal with. Um, and finally, my last pick is user voice. Um, I, I doubled and triple checked to make sure that it hadn't been picked and it hadn't. So user voice is actually what we use for our request a topic. Um, and I, I really, really like it. Um, it. It makes it really easy to manage kind of the ideas and requests and, and features and stuff. Um, I've seen other clients use it for things like support. So if you have a question or uh, a comment or a feature request, and you can put it in through through user voice. So uh, those are my picks, and uh, I think they're great. So, um, did we have James go? Not yet. All right, James. What are your picks? I've got a bunch of picks this time. I've uh, been consuming all kinds of cool content lately, and it's awesome. So I thought I'd show. Um, the first is I found this great uh, ebook, uh, bootstrapping design. Uh, and uh, this is a book for basically developers um, who end up needing to do some design for their startup or whatever. Um, and uh, it's it's just a really great book. Uh, it's absolutely great if, if you're so like if you have some design skills, this is probably not a good book for you. Um, but if you're like me and you can't design your way out of a wet paper bag. Um, this is a great book for you because it's it it goes through and it's just like ruthlessly practical. I mean, it's you know this is how designers choose color. That's complicated and hard. Here's some rules you can follow that will get you pretty good results <laughs> easily. You know, and um, it has nice graphics that are really geared toward you know developer types, like a picture of you know. Uh, mistakes you can make with fonts with an X over it, and then a picture of using those in a good way with a check mark next to it. You know, so it's <laughs> it's just really like a, a great book for uh, if you're a developer and you want to just you know this won't make you a design expert or anything like that, but it might actually make you able to look at two websites and judge which one is probably superior. They, um, they should have called it crafting pretty applications. Crafting pretty applications, yeah. It actually puts like the two things next to each other with a, a checkbox and a or a check mark and a and an X. Yeah. I'm not so kidding. it's like it's like this is a, 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 a ultra niche it's it's a design book for people who are bad at design and reading books. <laughs> <laughs> right, which would be uh, another way to say that exact same thing more short is developers, right? Yes, <laughs> yes. Right. Is, is this like eat this, not that? <laughs> so anyways, that was my first pick. Um, 
Second pick, I'll do this one quick because um, we've definitely mentioned Destroy All Software on the show multiple times. So I had to pick it again. But he just did an eight-episode series called Sucks Rocks where he re-implements this old Sucks Rocks application. Shut up, David. Um, in uh, Rails. And it's awesome. Um, in fact, you know, we've been talking on the show and pretty much everywhere in the community about how would I build an application that just uses Rails as a delivery mechanism. And he basically does that. I don't even think he introduces Rails until like episode five or something like that. So he just happily builds this thing. And there's some things in here I don't like that he does, which, but I always love things like that because then they get me thinking. Um, but the thing you should watch for that's really awesome uh, as you watch this series is watch how his model interface turns out because he just develops this application the way he wants it. And he's like, oh, I'm going to need a method that does this. And those methods end up being his model interface and it uses absolutely nothing from Active Record like Create or anything like that. So if you want to know how to design by just treating Rails as like a delivery mechanism, this is a great thing to look at. Um, one more thing. I told you I found lots of good stuff. Um, there is just this awesome slide deck from Matt's um, about how Emacs changed his life. And it's really interesting, really fast. You'll shoot right through it, and the slides only have a few words on them. Uh, but it's really interesting. It, it actually turns out that Emacs was a major design influence on the Ruby programming language. Mm. <laughs> and that you, explains so much. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's Before it. I give up. <laughs> He's upset right now, but you know. Uh, but no, seriously. Vindication. That's right. Uh, <laughs> I guess this uh, this interested me because I've been playing a lot with them. Um, Emacs lately and learning a lot about it. Uh, but it's really interesting about um, uh, Matt's design goals and stuff. But the other thing I love about this slide deck is um, it's also uh, what hacking looks like, in my opinion, is uh, this process that Matt's goes through. And if you read the slide deck, I think you'll see what I mean. So those are all on-topic stuff. One off-topic one, uh, what I've been watching on TV lately is Downton Abbey. Uh, which is kind of a high society uh, show. Uh, it's a masterpiece theater, uh, masterpiece classic theater uh, series, and it's it's uh, takes place the day after the Titanic sinks is is when the series starts, um, and the first season goes up to uh, the start of uh, the World War, and uh, it's it shows the high society, but it also shows like their servants and how they're living and stuff. And usually I don't get into these kind of, you know, eh, suitor, I always call them suitor stories where the girls are always trying to attract suitors, <laughs> you know, but uh, really this one's uh, pretty interesting and the characters are cool and, and well-rounded. They're not, you know, black and white and stuff like that. And I have enjoyed watching it uh, and I've enjoyed watching it with my wife. So it's a great thing you can, uh, you can probably watch with your significant other. Okay, those are my picks. I'll show that. All right. Um, David, what are your picks? Uh, so I will lead by saying I, I, I 
I guess I can't unpick somebody else's pick, but uh, uh, I just could not get into Downton Abbey. I, I basically I, I turned it off halfway through the first episode and said, "This is an entire mini series about British people being nasty to each other a hundred years ago," and, uh, <laughs> and it really is. Um, and you're, I told you're hitting the selling points here. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's true. That's true. If that, if that's a if that's a feature for you, it's A plus plus would buy again, wouldn't it? Um, my wife loves the period pieces, so if if they're dressed up in olden ways, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, they could be like yo yo brother yo, uh, yeah. you know, dressed up as olden people, and yeah, mm-hmm. she she'd be into it. So <laughs> ye oldie thug life. Um, <laughs> So I just have one pick today. That, and that's that going to be my next podcast, Ye Oldie Thug Life. Ye, ye Oldie Thug Life. Uh, so I just have one pick today, and that is Draw Something uh, for iPad and iPhone. And uh, basically, it's Pictionary on crack. Um, you, uh, Are you draw addicted? pictures. Uh, I'm actually burning out. Um, I, I've got about 23 games running simultaneously. Um, and, and you can tell like people that play, play against me, they either get, um, a very quick sketch done in like 30 seconds or they get like a five minute long movie, you know, I mean like multiple frames and, you know, like updates and reaction. And then the thing, the cool thing about it is you get to watch the other person as they're drawing, um, but you can't talk to them, so you can't influence the drawing. So it's a, it's a really interesting dynamic. Um, and uh, it, it's interesting because the, the people that I play with are kind of divided into two groups. You can just start a game and the game, the, their server will just go find a stranger for you to play with. Um, and if you, if you do that, um, or if I do that, then I'm playing against a stranger. And so I tend to be very family friendly and very PG. <laughs> and it just <laughs> broke my heart because I was playing against a teenage girl that I did not know. And I got the word. The three words that I was allowed to pick from were stool, poop, and triplets. And I'm like, crap! I have to draw triplets because I I don't want to get you know sent to jail uh, for send, <laughs> sending something offensive to a teenage girl. You know, it's I'm gonna be I'm gonna be uh, the next guy up on to catch a predator. Um, so can but, I can I just point something out here? David yeah. Brady dissed my pick for being uh, British people being nasty to each other. Yes. And gave a pick that allows him to be nasty to the rest of teenage girls in the modern world. <laughs> I'm not being nasty. I'm not being nasty. I'm being gross. There's a difference. Uh, <laughs> David, you do know stool is also something you can sit on, right? Wait, That's what? disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> I was so waiting for that. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, if if, uh, if my username is RatGeyser, and if you connect to me and you you just write me a note that say I'm from Ruby Rogues or I know you from Twitter, then you go on the other list, and uh, <laughs> like I I sent uh, I sent Josh a drawing. The the drawing was Pong, and I drew the the, the screen for Pong, and. Then, <laughs> Sorry, you just said he once had a three-legged stool in the back channel, and that broke my brain. <laughs> Did you have to have it surgically removed? That's all I want to know. Uh, but yeah, so I drew Josh the classic Pong video game screen, and he he he, he typed P O N G and hit thing, and that skipped to the end of the drawing, so he didn't see that that I had been peeled off a new page and drew a gigantic dong, and then in Ruby code next to it wrote, wrote dot sub you know d slash b, uh d slash p uh you know so i mean you get you get basically uh 
penises with a ruby coat attached to them. Um, if, which if which is what we all live for. Yeah, if that's your cup of tea, hit me up on Draw Something. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Josh, what are your picks? Uh, oh, sure, make me fall in. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you said not me first, so. It's fine, it's fine. Okay, so... Uh, one of the reasons, so I've been playing Draw Something, obviously, and um, I have this great little um, iPad stylus that I picked up as swag at a conference, yeah. and it makes me about uh, 10 times the artist that I am with my finger. So I, I don't have an endorsement of a particular brand of, of iPad stylus, but they're incredibly easy to Google, and it, it's just basically a pen with a felt tip and no ink. And you know, mine is a little clicker button on the end, and it will retract the the felt tip, so it doesn't get dirty in your bag. So, so go get one; they're great. Nice. Uh, okay, and then um, then uh, my uh, my next pick is for ApologyPro.com, and this is a uh, this is thanks to Avdi. Uh, Avdi put up some very uh, concise guidelines for how to deliver an effective apology when you've done something that uh, you probably shouldn't have done. Uh, even if you don't understand what you did wrong. Uh, so go check that out. <laughs> all the married men all went, even if it's something you hadn't done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, I, I, I love apologies. Apologies are uh, are really easy to deliver. Um, they're even easy to deliver a sincere apology. You just really have to want to reestablish channels of communication with someone. And, and if that's your priority, it's not that big a deal. That, so I, I, one of the best... Uh, words of relationship advice I ever got from any, anybody was, and it may, it was probably even on a movie or reading a book or something. It was, but it was, uh, you know, Oh, you know, where I'm having a fight with my wife, what should I do? Well, you should apologize. But what if I'm right? Oh, then you should definitely apologize. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So it's so true. true. I want to say something real quick. Somebody, I got a ton of pushback on that where people basically saying, Oh, so you're saying that people should just, just, um, you know, just insincerely apologize, um, you know, to make people happy. And I'm definitely not saying that. Um, but here's the thing about about like human communication. Uh, and I'm not going to claim that I'm an expert, but um, but even if you deliver an apology, which is not completely sincere, if it is a real apology, it will change the dynamic so much you know, between you and the and the and the whoever you're having an altercation with. It will change the dynamic so much and so quickly um, in most cases that you will discover that you, you know, soon you actually are sincerely apologizing because they will come, you know, once you come out and meet them a little bit more than halfway, they will come out and meet you a little bit more than halfway. And, you know, these, it's, it's all about, it's all about taking that, that first step. Yeah. Communication is a dynamic. And, well, the, the and, other and, thing that, so. that I've noticed is basically that uh, a lot of times I'll be apologizing and I'm not apologizing for, you know, the, the point I was trying to make. Usually it's I'm sorry I put it in a way that made you upset or, I, you know, you, you're communicating the intent, you know, not to have offended or whatever, as opposed to, um, you know, actually saying, you know, clearly I was wrong about everything in my life. And, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, j- j- just go read ApologyPro.com. It's it's, it's yeah. all you need to get started. 
so, 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 so thank, thank you, Avdi, for putting that stuff up there. I think it, uh, you know, given how contentious things can get on the internet and people inadvertently offending other people or you know saying stuff to break down communication, I think it's it's great to have uh, helpful tips for people for how to how to unstuck communication. Wait, somebody's angry on the internet. Yeah, it's a it's an amazing thing. Oh, it this week now. everybody is They're wrong. on the internet. <laughs> Our next They're... episode will be a uh, one hour apology for the fact that we have David Brady on the show. Yep, <laughs> it, it might take several shows. We're it's... not wrong, and we're not sorry. Yeah, yeah okay. it's it's all in good fun, you know. Uh, okay, so, so so moving along. <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, no, so uh, this is a this is a repick of an old pick, but it's been updated, so I think it's worth mentioning again. And that's the hub uh, command line utility for uh, making working with GitHub uh, much easier. And it's it's been it's been growing and improving. Uh, and it's really nice for if, if you're doing anything with GitHub, if, especially if you're dealing with pull requests or um, you know any of the GitHub specific things. Um, it's it's really great. So uh, check that out. And then uh, I mentioned uh, a couple weeks ago that I'm at the Rock Health Accelerator, or my startup is, and I mentioned that they had some cool stuff, some resources for startups, and they finally. Uh, got the video series all packaged up. So that's called Startup Elements, and it's um, on the rockhealth.com website. And they have a bunch of great videos up there of you know people telling uh, startup founders how to make good decisions about running their business. And so you, even if you're not in the health IT field, it's really worth checking out. So, um, and and then just a little a little word for Heroku. I haven't been through the um, initial development slash deployment process on Heroku in a while, and it's just gotten so much better than it was a couple of years ago. That I you know, I know a lot of people out there are already using Heroku, but uh, if you're ha- if you haven't been using Heroku in oh, in like a year, come back and take a look at it. It's really gotten so much easier. To do pretty much everything that you want to do typically in a in an application. Yesterday, I wanted to uh, install uh, SSL certs and do HTTPS so that all my everything on my application would be secure. And you know, it took me a very short amount of time to just find where everything was on their site to hook that up and to make it work. And they had really great instructions for doing all of the, you know, the tool chain stuff for creating the SSL cert and getting the thing approved and registered. And so it's, it, it's, it's turned into an exceptionally good experience. So, uh, you know, if anyone's considering whether, you know, they should be using Heroku, it's definitely worth checking out. So, and they're not our sponsor. I'm saying that just because. <laughs> but they should be. That's right. We'll talk to them. Yeah. All right. Jose, what, what, what are your picks? Okay. So uh, I would for, first like to show a link to uh, Piotr Sarnatsky, uh Twitter profile, because we talked about him in the show and he's working Rails 3.1 engine. So go follow him. You're probably going to pick up something interesting. Uh, the second one is for my company, Plataforma. Most of the work I do in Rails and open source in general, they are the guys sponsoring. So just want to give a shout to them and thank them for the opportunity and everything. Uh, third one is the link to Elixir, which I think it was already mentioned at some point. We have a very nice getting started guide. Uh, so I recommend you to go ahead, try it out. And the last one, uh, my last pick is a gem called Jimson. Uh, I've recently was working 
in an application that had to communicate with an external service. And the only way for me to communicate with this external service was uh, via JRuby. So I had this one Ruby 1.9 communicating to JRuby, and I could use REST for this kind of stuff and expose via Sinatra, but that would be an overkill because I just want a raw access to, to the methods and API. So I basically needed an RPC, right? Remote procedure call. And there is this Jinsum gen uh, that implements JSON RPC. It's very simple, it's very elegant, uh, and it, it helped me a lot. So if someone ever feels like needs something in this scenario, I would recommend this gen. And that's it. All right. Well, awesome. once again, I just want to remind everybody, first off, you know, go spend a few bucks, send a birthday card over to uh, Steve Klabnik. Steve, that's Steve, Steve Klabnik's dad, Steve Klabnik. You know, I also want to thank uh, Jose for coming on the podcast again and for writing such an awesome book. Thanks, yeah. guys. Yes. Thank you very much. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, thanks a lot. Can, can you remind people about RailsConf? Or I'll do it. We're going to be at RailsConf. Come to RailsConf. We're going to be doing a live session. Yep. And that is the 23rd through the 25th. And I don't know if we know, I, I don't know yet when our session is. So just come it's for the on, whole thing. It's on, just come it's for the whole thing. The site. Is it on the site now? They have the schedule up? Cool. All right. Also, we are in iTunes, so you can go and uh, find us there. Just do a search for Ruby or Ruby Rogues. I've also found that we are in the What's Hot section under technology, which is um, between that and new and noteworthy. Both of those are pretty hard to get into. So uh, thank you guys so much for all of your support. Really, really appreciate it. And if you're listening on an Android device or something, I had somebody recommend on one of my podcasts to use Dogcatcher as uh, to get your podcasts. So if you have yes. an Android device and you're looking for a good way to get them, apparently that's one that works really, really well. So other than that, we will catch you all next week. Cheers, everybody. <laughs>